My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This is the first recording I've done since I got back from the convention. And let me tell you, that was a wild and fun ride, getting to meet everyone in person, getting to hang out, play some killer bunnies, make fun of everyone in person, uh, attend Pastor Will's uh, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Uh, It's been a while since I've been to a Lutheran church, so that was a delight as well. Uh, Just to get some really deep discussions going, too. Uh, As you see, some of them have been posted on uh, our part of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network, but you can also find the other shows there as well to see the further conversations we're having. I think we're still going to be posting a couple more later on in the future. So that's that. Uh, something to look forward to. Had, like I said, some really great conversations, some real challenging conversations. It was a ton of fun. It was a blast. I would definitely do it all over again. So with that in mind, uh, thank you for tuning in to the show. Uh, Thank you once again for all your support and continuing to uh, spread the word out there to let people know what's going on, what this is about, how they can find me, how they can contact me, stuff like that. Really appreciate all your work there in that regard. Uh, Also, today, we're going to be going into the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 13. So we're going to start today in verses 1 through 5. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, Jesus is referring right here to two very different historical events that happened around the same time. We unfortunately don't have any records of those events that I have found in my research. So Luke is our primary source for this in that regard. So it all goes in a matter of faith. Do you trust Luke? Do you trust that is this a scripture? Well, here you go. That's that moment of wrestling for you. I'm going to say yes, because Luke has proven his trustworthiness time and time again. So that's what it is. But as far as this historical event of, you know, Pilate murdering Galileans goes, like, we don't know. Uh, Pilate was one of those governors who he was a yes man. He was there to like lift up himself and get things done. And from what we can tell, he didn't like his posting there (laughs) because of how contentious uh, the Jewish people were, which I understand from his point of view. But uh, you have a very rebellious people, one who doesn't uh, like the authority of Rome, who has their own way of doing things. They worship this weird singular God, and they're very fixated on that idea. Uh, so, But also, that doesn't excuse murdering these people for presumably something that has to do with sacrifices within uh, the temple or something like that. Uh, there's not a lot of context even in like the people of the day would have known exactly what was meant by this, but we unfortunately don't. But like the point being conveyed here, uh, other than the fact that you know we're two thousand years removed from the event, so that makes it remarkable that we have what records that we do. So let's all be great, uh, grateful that we do have surviving records at all, because we don't have everything Romans ever wrote down. We don't have everything the Jewish scholars and Pharisees wrote down. So let's be grateful to that. But the point being conveyed here is that these people, you know, didn't deserve their death simply because of their sins or their parents' sins. Because if this was true, all humans would perish in a very similar fashion due to our sins. Like uh, the moment we sin, like we are separated from God. It's irreversible 
in that regard without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So God righteously and justly should like get rid of us all the moment we sin. But because God, like we discussed before, is loving and merciful, he gives us all a chance. So Jesus is trying to make a point here to all these people and be like, hey, these people died in these terrible circumstances. It didn't necessarily have anything to do with their particular sins or the sins of their parents. It has to do with the fact that we live in a broken creation and that this is going to happen because human beings are finite creatures since we're separated from God and that eternal spirit, that soul we're going to have is only going to be that way in regards to actually living in paradise if we repent of our sins. It's like God's judgment is going to come to everyone. And once again, if we don't repent, we will suffer under his wrath, his righteous wrath. But to those of us who have repented and be the new creations that Jesus has uh, made us to be, we don't need to worry about this. So his point to these people is like, look, you're worried about something. Yes, that's a natural human inclination. Like, could that happen to me? It, it very well could. Like, for all I know, there could be a gas leak somewhere in this building I'm in right now. And it goes boom. And then I'm no more on this earth. And I live in eternity. Well, sure, you can always have that old preacher adage of, well, what happens if you walk outside the church day, you get run over by a car and killed, and you go to hell. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, that that's true. Is that the most effective strategy here? It's like Jesus is combating that idea. Say, look, you need to be mindful of these things. Not because we're looking for that get out of hell free card or because we just want peace of mind, but because we want that honest relationship with Jesus Christ to be better than who we are. So we'll move on from there to verses six through nine. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit in this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should not, excuse me, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What we see here in this very small parable is, wow, it's, we see God's patience on full display, his immense patience with us, far beyond what we deserve. The fig tree here is used as a symbol both for Israel and all who heard Jesus's words at that time in history, but also to those who will later hear the message and then show that next to no improvement in their lives and who have borne no fruits of the spirit as a result. It's, it's very simple. Look, those who have heard the message have no excuse. So once again, we'll get to that in Romans later on uh, to people who have not heard the message. Like, where did they go? But Jesus spent three years of ministry talking to people, explaining about the kingdom of God, explaining about who he was as the son of God, as the redeemer, as the Messiah. That was plenty of time for all Israel to realize their need for God and repentance. Yet that didn't happen. Once again, the people who should have known before anyone else, who should have been more prepared than anyone else to receive Jesus gladly and warmly because he had been spoken of all over the Old Testament. Because the New Testament doesn't exist now. It was simply, you know, you know, the the Bible at that point in time. But they had three years of preparation 
and how many people spat in his face, told him no, and called him <laughs> a minion of Satan in some regards too. It's like, look, recall the earlier example in this book of the Ninevites repenting after hearing Jonah's message for about three days, and then contrast that with the people around Jesus who had far more time to make that decision and just told him no to his face. Don't do the same. One of the points, there are several points in Jonah, but one of the points in Jonah is that, look, Gentiles need God too, and they have no context for me in the same way that you do. So why aren't you my people I chose out of everyone seeking the same things they do if I send a call to repentance to them. This is a very obvious slam against the Pharisees, something they're going to take immense offense to, because how dare you compare us to those godless Gentiles? We know the scriptures. We know exactly what's going on. Let's not do the same when it comes to what we say and what we do. Look, God is going to cut those down who show no fruit in their lives because they are worthless to him, the world, and the people around them. Just like a fruit tree that bears no fruit is going to be to those who depend on it. If my job is to go out there and with my terrible green thumb, try and produce a lot of trees that I need to make money, that I need to uh, for, my need, for all of my needs to be able to eat, what have you, and if fig tree or whatever fruit tree does not produce fruit, then what use is it to me? The best thing I can do is rip it out of the ground, burn it, and pretend it never existed. Or just say, hey, I don't want any more trees like that. How do we prevent that from happening later? And unfortunately, the same thing is true of people. I don't get any joy out of saying this. I don't want to fire and brimstone you right now, but it's reality. It's what's going to happen to people who don't listen to the truth and then apply it to their lives. It's not an easy thing to swallow, but denying reality in favor of placating others or ignoring the truth is never good for a faithful walk with Jesus. And we, uh, the world around us deserves better than that, to just being told what they want to hear. Being said, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. You'll get there eventually. That's, that's simply not true, and it's not helpful, and is in fact harmful for people to hear that. And we should never be willingly a part of any message that speaks that. Next up, we go through verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey, excuse me, his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead him away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Here we see Jesus once again putting everyone to shame who would abuse Scripture for their own purposes. This is not what the people need. They need leaders 
who know their scripture and then apply it to their lives. Like, look, the law said you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but the law also said to love your neighbor as yourself. So which one should you follow? But the one that takes precedence, and it's not the one about doing nothing on a day, <laughs> even though as a very lazy person, that really appeals to me. It's like, no, that's not how things are supposed to be done. There is no day there on Sunday. We don't just say, well, we show up on church on Sunday and then we just laze about the house and do nothing. But there's still stuff to get done. Don't let it take you away from your ministries. Don't take let it take you away from focusing on what was said in you know church that day or in small group or what have you. But also you can get stuff done. God allows us all this time to get stuff done. Don't get focused on the smaller details when the bigger ones have more importance for our lives. And here we see also that this demonic activity has affected the physical as well as the spiritual again when it comes to controlling this woman's life. Yet, even after 18 years of suffering, Jesus ends it all with one sentence, and she rejoices, knowing of how much she has been given. This is a wondrous tale of God's provision. And I'm sure a bunch of people say, well, why didn't you show up to the first time it happened? It's like, no, that's not the point. That's not the point. Like, look, God doesn't have to intervene at all in our lives. He doesn't have to intervene when I demand that he does. He has to intervene when he's supposed to. And right now, he is most definitely supposed to. Not only to help this woman and free her from this oppression, but also to get the high and mighty to realize their way of doing things is false. Their way of doing things harms people because this woman has been around for 18 years and who has been taking care of her? Uh, it doesn't seem like anyone, really. I mean, from what little we have here, maybe there was someone who was, but maybe one person, not the whole congregation, not people who could have poured their lives into her and that seemed in their needs were met and all that. If anything, she would have been seen as an eyesore. And like earlier, we discussed, they say, oh, well, what sin did she commit or what sin did her parents commit that it caused her to end up this way? Like, surely she deserves this punishment. It's like, no. That's not the point. This woman was a daughter of Abraham. She was a child of God and she needed help. And Jesus reached out to do that for her. But of course, the Pharisees don't see it that way. And instead, they get angry that Jesus has once again worked on the Sabbath. What should have been this time of rejoicing is ruined by people who wish to inflict their own viewpoints upon reality. Learn from their choices here. Don't lose sight of the gospel and the joys of ministry just to enforce the rules of your church or your own personal viewpoints that don't 100% align with scripture. Instead, rejoice with those who are being delivered from their troubles and their sins, lest we be shamed for our impious actions. Is that really how I want to give my report card to Jesus and be like, hey, like I kept these laws, I did these things. Uh, there was that that person I could have helped out, but I didn't because, well, you know, I had other responsibilities and it was Sunday and I had other things to do. It's like, I never want that to be the case. It's been the case. Don't get me wrong. And that's something I continually have to work on myself with. But do something about that. Next up, verses 18 through 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. 
the kingdom of heaven is here right now in this world. It's not the final one. We're not in the new earth and the new heaven, but the kingdom of heaven has been established here. <clears throat> All for our sake. Also, we can have that security in the fact of who Jesus is, who God is, who the Holy Spirit is, and we can then do something with that. We can look after others. We can love them knowing that we are serving a kingdom that may look small at times, but is so big. It has grown so vast that words can barely express it. Like, look, in Jesus's day, the idea of his message reaching the entire world and him establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth was ludicrous. Even now, we can get discouraged and I'll be there, like raise my hand. Like I get discouraged sometimes. I say, look, I don't think we're doing enough. I don't think the kingdom of God is reaching all that it could be. And look, we can get discouraged and we can see just how few people actually know who he is and have made a decision to follow him and how many of the people who've actually made the decision to follow him are actually bearing fruit. Like, and we can get discouraged about that. I, I'm, I'm right there with you, but I say this to you and I say this to me, take heart with these verses. It's easy to get discouraged by what we think should happen, but it's a lot harder and far more rewarding to watch the small things that God allows us to grow in our walks with him and see what happens as a result of that. I, I talked earlier, um, I think it was, I can't remember which chapter Luke it was talking about the disciples and about how they all died uh, without seeing Christianity spread everywhere. But the gospel didn't stop with their deaths. In 301 AD, if I'm remembering my history correctly, the first Christian nation in the world, Armenia, is established. And around, I think it's 380 AD, the entire Roman Empire makes Christianity their official religion. That doesn't mean that every single person in the empire became a Christian. But remember where we started? We start in Judea. We start in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, to the point the very one of the groups that got, that ordered Jesus' death is now working as a team on the side of making Christianity the official religion of the entire empire. That mustard seed of Jesus's faithful ministry in Judea, in Samaria, that then emboldened his disciples, that wasn't some false faith that was going to make them rich, that wasn't some false faith that gave them deluded ideas about how the world worked, but this genuine faith that made them go out so that they can have others learn who Jesus is and how he can change their lives, that in 350-ish years, they were able to make the entire Roman Empire make Christianity the official religion of that empire. And once again, it wasn't perfect. There were plenty of Roman emperors after that fact who said they were Christian and did terrible things. There are plenty of people who use Christianity for their own benefits. Like it wasn't a utopia. Never listen to anyone who says that. They're off their gourds. They're out of their minds. But let's focus on the good parts. It's like the persecuted Christians for 300 some years are now on top. That's that's a long time to wait. You know, no one's lived that long in recent history. And yet it happened because people had that faith of a mustard seed. And look at us now. Look at us now. God has children all over the planet in a situation that would have been outrageous to the mind of a first century reader of Luke. Yet realize where we are and all the hard work it took us to get here. God used every single Christian in history to bring us to this moment. No matter how small their actions to bring his love, his truth, and his hope into a world that has nothing good to offer its residents. 
and all because Christians were faithful to the call to go and make disciples. Learn from our spiritual ancestors and go and do the same. Have that faith of a mustard seed. It has to start somewhere, no matter how small. Next up, we'll go to 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you. I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God that you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at at table in in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. I kind of brought it up a little earlier. But like the unfortunate reality that all, we're all going to have to wrestle with at some point, and we're all going to have to make decisions on what we actually believe in this regard, is the fact that not every single person we know and love will be with us in eternity with God. I don't like saying that out loud. And in fact, I mean, really, I, I despise saying that out loud because I will never wish hell upon anyone because I know what it means. It means eternal separation from Jesus, from from the Trinity, from having that ability to be with him, to no longer have any worries or fears or concerns, to be at peace, to be joyful every single moment of the day. Like, look, I'm not here to guilt trip anyone. Like, this is something that comes on my mind every now and then. Like, this is what I'm reminded of every time God calls me to speak with those who don't know him. I've heard that audible voice sometimes say, go talk to them. And that's it. And like I mentioned before, as someone who likes uh, their 50-step their plan, it's like, okay, well, what do I say? Go talk to them. It's infuriating. And sometimes I have said no and walked away, and I have been a terrible witness. So if that's ever happened to you, guess what? You're in good company. We're all works in progress here. I, I'm an introvert by nature. I, I'm uh, very misanthropic by nature. Uh, those who don't know what that means, I really hate people <laughs> by nature. But what God has done in my life is change aspects of myself, to actually seek community with others, to actually care about the people around me, to love them where they're at, where they are, and to show them that same love that I have been given. Look, I failed time and time again in this regard, but I've also been successful. And not every single person I've talked to came to faith. Like it's a very small number of people I have talked to, and as a result, they came to faith. Like I'm talking like I could hold up five fingers and I'd have to get rid of some. But you know what? That means those lives were changed forevermore. And I'm not going to see the totality of what they do because those people live very far away from me. And yet they're touching the people around them that never would have happened if I hadn't have been faithful in that moment. Look, we don't do this to fill a quota of people to introduce to the gospel. Like we don't have the evangelism class, that seminar for a week or two at church. And we go out into the, the battlefields of our towns. We talk to people about Jesus and come back and say, Oh man, we talked to people and you know, like yeah, all 50 of them came to Jesus and like, sure. Yeah. Those things are very useful. I don't want to disparage that, but don't think of it as a numbers game. 
think of it as people who are lost and need Jesus, just like we did before he came into our lives. This is not also done to make ourselves look better or to say, you know, I did it and then ignore the next person I see in need. Like, look, like, uh, God, I talked to that person you told me to, but uh, that one right there, I can see there's an issue I could probably speak into. Nah, I'll move on with my life. It's not how this works. We do this simply because every single person born on this world needs God and will one day have to make the decision of whether or not to follow him. And if we can help in that process to aid them along the way, the better it is. It's nice. Once again, as someone who doesn't like people, it is very nice to have people around your side who are there to build you up, who are there to answer questions, who are there to send you to people who know how to answer questions, or or people who are willing to say, I don't know. It's very freeing to be in that environment. But if we ourselves don't participate in it, the kingdom is weakened as a result, and we need to be better about it. And once again, like I say, when I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me in this regard. I am not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect, but I'm working on it. Also, we see in these verses, like uh, something that came to mind while I was reading through it. It's like, I've had the great pleasure uh, to speak with several universalists, uh, thanks to being plugged into this network. Like normally I wouldn't be able to talk to someone like that. I mean, I'm I'm on a Southern Baptist campus. You have a universalist thought, you're going to get excommunicated. I mean, uh, maybe tar and feathered. That's just the environment I'm in. But that can sometimes be an echo chamber. And I don't ever want to live in an echo chamber where every person in my life has the exact same viewpoints as me. Because you know what? I don't have everything right. I don't see everything in light of eternity. I am not God. There are some things in my theology that could very well be wrong. Like staying in that echo chamber, all it's ever going to do is create stagnation and pride. And like, look, make no mistake. I, I believe what I believe because I have researched them extensively and can come like I can come to no other conclusion than the ones I did. But that doesn't mean I don't reserve the right to change my mind based on new evidence or a new understanding. That's something the whole church could learn as a, as a whole is like, hey, when something new comes up, my, my thought process should not be, well, I think this, therefore that cannot be true. Like it may not be true, but that's not helpful. There's, there's having a skeptical viewpoint to certain things. And there's being an ultra skeptic who, you know, if Bigfoot were waving at them right in front of their face would say that's not real. Like <laughs> That's not, that's not how this works. Like, look, uh, I mean, well, let's use that as an example. Sure. If there was a, an ultra skeptic out there, they said there's no such thing as a giant eight foot tall hominid that is roaming around North America. It's like, okay, sure. That's, that's an interesting premise to work off of because it's very hard to prove that that's true. But then it happens in front of their face. They didn't don't get to say, I didn't see what I saw. That's, that's not how events work. That's not how truth works. And this isn't your your cryptozoology podcast right now, as much as I'd love to make one in addition to everything else that I'm doing. But the point remains like, hey, you know, if I see a a large silver disc, a saucer fall down on the ground and I see a bunch of little gray aliens walk out and they start asking me questions, I don't get get to say I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. That's, That's not how it works. I don't get to experience what Jesus says and to say that's not what he said. No what you want to believe. No, no, Scooby, know what you believe because you've researched it well. And when someone comes up with something that contradicts what you say, don't dismiss it out of hand. Work together with them to see where they came from and then work through it with them. And most of the time, like that I have talked uh, with a universalist, the conversations, all they've ever done 
is to serve the strength of my understanding of this narrow path that Jesus mentions that his true followers will follow on. Like, look, I wish everyone would go down this path, but it's simply not true. And I hate that. I don't want that to be reality, but it is because that's what Jesus says right here. It's because it's because of verses like this, where, where Jesus speaks of those who never knew him and their eternal punishment for doing this, for refusing the one gift that could have saved them from themselves is an eternity in hell. That's reality. It's not fun. I don't like it. That's truth. I don't get to say anything else. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's a necessary understanding we all need to come to. Otherwise, we're deluding ourselves. And hey, if you have that viewpoint right now, like I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of you, please. I'm not trying to say you're stupid. Like I would never want to say those words to you. It's like, look, when I read scripture, I cannot see that viewpoint. It makes no sense in light of what Jesus says and does. But let's also not miss one of the points Jesus is making here. Like, look, people from across the entire world are going to go down this narrow path and be his for eternity. From every tribe, tongue, and denomination. A nation would actually be the verse. Sorry, I've been thinking of the... <laughs> I've been thinking of the convention too much. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is something to praise in the midst of the reality of those who won't say yes to him. Like, look, make no mistake, we should mourn the lost. But if that's where we remain, our witness for the kingdom of heaven suffers as a result. Once again, I don't like thinking about the people who are spending eternity in hell. I want them to know Jesus just like I do. But I can't do anything about that. They're dead and gone. I mean, I don't get to have that harrowing in hell where I get to go down and start preaching. I mean, if Jesus, it didn't work for them that time, for the people who said no to him then, it's probably not going to work for me either because I'm not Jesus. It's okay. But let's also see in light of everything here, we should all strive to be seen not as the best of the best, but as a simple, humble follower of Christ, wherever we may be. The world is unfortunately just full of Christians who are in this calling for the wrong reasons sometimes and attempt to gather that glory for themselves rather than with God who deserves it. The glory should always go to God. The glory should never go to Christian Ashley. It should never go to any of you listening right here now. It should never go to anyone else but him. Likewise, there are many people who claim to be Christians and act in that very same ungodlike behavior. Don't fall into that trap of pride if you are his, if you're not his, because it's one of the most more difficult sins to recover from. I mean, because like, look, we all want to be seen as the best. We want to be seen them better than everyone else at some point in our lives. Like we see, we love ourselves too much to deny ourselves, to be seen as less than. But know that even when we fall into this sin, God is always waiting to lovingly reprimand us and get us back on our feet to serve him again. And we'll conclude today with verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow in the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The last time we saw Herod, uh, in Luke 9, if I'm remember, uh, remembering correctly, 
he wished to see Jesus. Like he was perplexed. Like, who is this Jesus? Let's go see him. And according to the Pharisees, who have potentially come to warn Jesus, he now plans to kill Jesus, which probably for similar reasons as John the Baptist. Like, whether this is true or not is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. If the Pharisees are telling the truth, if they're lying. The truth of the matter is that it was inevitable for a man who had no love for God and his messages to go and then seek Jesus and kill him for his crime of speaking the truth in a world that wanted nothing to do with it. Whether that man be a king, a governor, a priest, what have you, it was inevitable, even if they're lying. Even if Herod just wanted to have that conversation with Jesus, it wouldn't have mattered because Herod would never have changed his ways. Herod made his own choices along the way that said, I will deny the truth even when it's right in front of my face. Same is true of the Pharisees. Jesus then rightly turns the conversation away from the fear that the Pharisees are expecting him to fall into, but instead he boldly establishes his credentials and his future triumph over death, which makes all their evil schemes fail in the end and means that judgment will come to those who do not heed his warnings. This is also something Jesus does not want to happen. He wants everyone who hears him to repent and follow him. But because people won't do this, he needs to justly punish them for their actions, as all who organize his death will receive later on. Yet even with that, Jesus offers a way out to those conspiring against him who will repent of their sins and follow him after the crucifixion and resurrection. From what we can tell, there are probably some Pharisees who after the crucifixion came to faith. I mean, Paul wasn't there in this area right now, but he's one of them. He's someone who, if he had been around this time, would have done the exact same thing the Pharisees were doing. Yet he comes to faith. He said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As long as someone is alive, there is always hope that they can turn away from their sins and who they used to be and then go and follow Jesus. Never give up hope as long as someone is alive. Don't delude yourselves into thinking this is the conversation. Like if I just say these words, this will be the time. But don't give up hope on them. So with that, thank you all for listening to Luke chapter 13. Uh, please, if you get the chance, just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of, tr- of choice. It really helps us as far as growth, as far as to reach more people out there. Thank you again for everyone who keeps sharing uh, the podcast to people on Facebook and Twitter and what have you. Um, if you're interested in my fiction writing at all, you can ch- find out my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. You can also contact me at letnothingmoveypodcast at gmail.com. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.